0: Hi, this is Sarah McCaslin, and in this Forgotten Sheep podcast, we're going to be talking about a German pastor named Martin Niemöller. He was a U-boat commander of the German Imperial Navy during World War I. He was a German war hero. He became a Lutheran pastor and theologian, and initially supported Hitler, but changed his mind. He actually stood face-to-face with Hitler on three different occasions in Hitler's office, and he was arrested for his stand against Nazism and spent a large portion of World War II in a concentration camp as Hitler's quote-unquote special prisoner. Now, after he was freed, he traveled the world teaching and preaching. Now, you may be familiar with Martin Niemoller without necessarily knowing it, he became very well known for a quote, and I'm going to uh, read this. This is the most accurate version of it that I have been able to find. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So many people are familiar with that quote, but they may not know about the man behind the quote, the circumstances, the decisions, the, uh, the passions that formed the life that that quote came out of. And so that's why we're going to spend some time on Forgotten Sheep talking about Martin Niemöller. So let's talk about Martin Niemöller's early years. He was born on January 14, 1892, in Lipstadt, Westphalia, Germany. And his full name is Friedrich Gustav Emil Martin Niemöller. His father's name was Heinrich, and he was a Lutheran pastor. And his mother's name was Pauline. And by all accounts, he grew up in a very conservative and very loving Christian home his parents absolutely adored him and it's from what i've read they sound like very good very sensible parents Uh, every day the family would read the bible together Um, he said that his parents home was often full of young people from his father's parish and he knew about the different problems in the parish because he was always you know hanging around the house and his parents were very good pastors well now It seems that at the ripe old age of five years old, Martin knew what he wanted to be when he grew up. He had chosen his path. He wanted to be a captain in the Imperial German Navy. And his parents, while they no doubt would have preferred that he follow perhaps his father's footsteps into the ministry, they never did anything to discourage his dream. And when he was 18 true to his childhood dream, he joined the German Imperial Navy. Now, that's kind of interesting that he decided when he was five what he wanted to do, and he carried that through into his teens and actually joined the Navy. He joined as a cadet in 1910. Now, in 1915, Martin was assigned to his first U-boat, his first submarine. Now, he would go on to be a submarine commander, but this was his first experience with a submarine, and it was only the third one in the German fleet at that time. And submarine warfare was going to be the major emphasis of his career until the end of World War I. Now, he was doing very well in the German Navy. He had a knack for this. He had a knack for, um, the submarines and being a commander. And you have to realize the submarines back then were not like the submarines we have now. They were basically death traps and they were an easy, they were a disturbingly easy target for ships because at that time they didn't have the technology to keep the submarines quiet as they were running underwater. Uh, so, This was a very dangerous uh, line of work for for Martin to have chosen, but he was doing extremely well in it. He was the second officer on the U-73, which was nicknamed the Floating Coffin. Can you imagine how concerned his parents must have been to find out that their son was the second officer on the Floating Coffin? And then later he became the navigator on the U 39, which became the second most successful German U boat in World War I in the uh, German Navy. Next, he served as first officer on the U 51, which during his time sunk a record of 37 ships. And then in June of 1918, Martin's childhood dream came true and he was given the command of the UC 67 which was a mine-laying submarine. And there's a picture of Martin in his Imperial Navy uniform not long after he received that promotion. And there is just so much pride emanating from that young man. Uh, He's standing straight and tall with his his fists on his hips, uh, looking very proud, looking very accomplished. And this was quite an accomplishment for such a young man. And he loved sea duty. He loved being on the submarine. He loved the challenges of uh, naval warfare. But at one point, his sub had to be repaired, and so he was sent to do what he called pencil-pushing work in Berlin. And while he was there, there were two major things that happened to him. One, Martin said that he learned to view situations strategically instead of tactically. He learned to focus better on the long-term outcome instead of just the immediate outcome, which he was used to doing in a battle scenario in a U-boat. And this would be important to him later when he would begin to resist uh, Nazism in Germany. So that's very important. The second important thing that happened to him is he started dating and then proposed to a very pretty young lady named Elsa Bremer. She was the sister of a former classmate of his, and he grew extremely attached to her. And when he was sent back to uh, U-boat duty, he missed her terribly. And eventually, of course, they would be married. And Elsa would stand with him through everything. When he publicly and openly stood against Hitler, when he publicly went to Hitler's office three times and spoke to him and rebuked him. When he was imprisoned in the concentration camp, Elsa supported him. She supported, uh, she, she, kept, she kept an eye on him the best he could in the concentration camp, trying to make sure that he had the things that he needed. She did everything she could to try to get him out of there, and she stood by his side. And so that's when they first met, was when he was, in, uh, when he was in the Navy. Well, not all of Martin's time in World War I was spent on a submarine. Eventually, the sub he was commanding had to go in for repairs. And while the sub was being repaired... He was sent to do what he called pis- pencil-pushing work in Berlin, and he was not real happy about this. He wanted to be out there in the middle of the, in the, middle of the battles. Um, but there were two key things that would happen to Martin during this time. The first was that he learned to view situations strategically instead of tactically, uh, with tactically being a focus on the immediate outcome, as he had to do on the U-boats whereas strategically looks more towards future outcomes and future repercussions. And this would be important to him later on as he became very active uh, first in supporting the Nazi party, and then when he turned and realized that he'd made a mistake in supporting the Nazi party and began to resist. So that would become very important. This was a very important lesson for him that no doubt the Lord intended for him to be exposed to and to learn. Now, the second thing that happened to Martin during this time period in Berlin was he started dating and then proposed to Elsa Brimmer. She was the sister of a former classmate, and he began dating her and fell madly in love with her. And eventually he would propose to her, and they would be married. Now, Elsa would stand by Martin through everything. She stood by him uh, during all the turmoil, during world war ii when he was in concentration camp as hitler's quote unquote special prisoner she tried to keep him supplied with the things that he needed she tried to keep him appraised of what was going on in the outside world they were a very committed couple they were very committed to each other and she would stand bravely by his side for the rest of her life Now, one thing that happened um, with Martin, he was involved in an attack on a French ship. And his orders were not only to sink the ship, which they did, they successfully sunk the ship, but also to hamper the rescue attempts. So what happened was they would raise the periscope up over and over and over again around that sinking ship while the French were trying to save as many of their sailors as they could. And this caused many of the sailors and officers on board that submarine, including Martin, to feel guilty. They felt like this was an immoral act during warfare, that they they felt like it was enough that they sunk the ship, that they didn't have to terrorize the rescuers. They felt like that was, that was wrong. And they began to discuss it among themselves, and they were rebuked by um, the higher authorities, and forbidden to discuss morals anymore on that submarine. And this distressed Martin. He felt like there was a place for morality in warfare, and he hated that he had followed those orders. But that's what his that's what his orders were. Now eventually, World War I would come to an end. Uh, Martin was awarded the Iron Cross First Class Medal for his military service. And in later years, he very humbly referred to this time period as playing hide-and-seek with battleships. And I think that's, that's interesting, a very humble way to put it. He enjoyed it thoroughly. That was his childhood goal, was to be a sea captain. And then they didn't have submarines, so how much more to be the captain of this new technological innovation in naval warfare? And he was very good at it. He was very brave. He was very sensible. And he was a German war hero from World War I. He was honored as a war hero. People knew who he was. Uh, as he went on and became a farmer and then later a pastor and then joined the resistance, the church's resistance, against the encroachment of Nazism, people would remember that he was a war hero. They knew who he was, and his opinions, his thoughts, his words, his stands carried a lot of weight because of that, because he was so highly respected. Well, when Germany lost the war, Martin was ordered to surrender his submarine to the British. And Martin refused the order. He told his CO, his commanding officer, that it was an order he simply could not follow. And his commanding officer agreed and said that he understood where uh, where Niemöller was coming from, and he gave that task, that order, to a different officer. Now get this, when that officer refused the order, he was told, you either do it or you're going to have a dishonorable discharge. Now that tells you a little bit about, first of all, how much honor and respect Martin Niemöller was held in as a war hero. And the second thing it shows us is Martin's passion. Once he had determined that a certain course of action was right or wrong, he passionately defended that. And this will show up through the rest of his life. Well, with the way that World War I ended, it also brought an end to his naval career. There was no longer really a place for him in the German Imperial Navy. Uh, the German military is uh, if I recall correctly, was pretty much uh decimated it was uh their number uh their numbers were forced to be reduced by the uh, peace treaty and the accords that were agreed upon and so that was the end of martin's naval career and he was left in a bit of a quandary because that's all that he had ever planned to do, and now that was over, and he was going to have to find another way of making a living and find another career. Well, with the way that World War I ended for Germany, with them losing rather heavily and a lot of political things that went on, there was no longer a place for Martin in the Navy. And that's all he'd ever thought about doing from the time he was five years old was being in the Navy. And now he had to come up with a new plan. Now, he had already begun thinking about his future uh, after the Navy while he was still serving in the U-boats. His initial plan was to become a sheep farmer and immigrate to Argentina with his wife uh, to be Elsa after they were married. And they were so intent on this plan that they actually started studying Spanish in preparation for immigrating to Argentina. Now... His uncle reminded him that there were plenty of farms in Westphalia. And he thought, well, okay, maybe, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe I should stay in Germany. So, rattling around in the back of his mind, clear back to his time on the U-boat, was the idea of becoming a pastor. And that was still rattling around in the back of his mind when he married Elsa in 1919. Now, when he married Elsa, someone asked him what his prospects were. And Martin said a whole heap of courage. (laughs) Well, he began working on a farm in Westphalia, Germany. Beautiful, rich farmland. Uh, Very beautiful. And the reality began to sink in for him that it was going to take him a long time for he and Elsa to save up enough money for them to be able to buy their own farm. And he decided that maybe this wasn't the best route for him. And so here he is out here in the fields working hard. He didn't mind the hard work. That wasn't it. It's just that it was going to take so long for them to get their own farm. So he spends his time as he's working out there with his hands. His mind is no longer occupied. His mind is no longer occupied with battle plans and coordinates and things like that. But it's free to run around and roam where it will. And so one thing that it began to go back to was thinking through different moral dilemmas that he had faced while hunting enemy ships. And he began to think about his future, that farming, it didn't seem like, it was going to work out well for him. And as he was out there in those fields working, one thing he realized was missing from his life. One thing he realized he really, really needed, and that was relationship with the Lord. He said that he was missing the kind of relationship with the Lord that he had when he was a child. And Martin wanted that back. And he made up his mind that he wanted that relationship back. And so he started to spend his time out there. As his mind was free to go where it wanted to, he began to seek the Lord while he was out there working with his hands. He began to pray. And as he began to seek the Lord and pray, he thought, well, maybe the Lord wants me to be a pastor like my dad. And there was just one little problem with that. You know, if you're going to be a pastor, you have to preach. If you're going to preach, you have to speak before people. And Martin was a brave u-boat captain who was terrified of public speaking in fact he was so terrified of public speaking he decided that okay the lord's calling me to be a pastor but i'm gonna study theology instead so i don't have to get up and preach very much (laughs) so that was his game plan so he went to the university of munster between 1920 and 1923 and studied theology Now, at this point, it's important for us to take a look at what was going on in Germany after the war. Now, Martin, like many others, felt that the German leaders who had signed the Treaty of Versailles had allowed the nation of Germany to be utterly crippled. He was concerned that Germany was going to fall prey to communism and it wouldn't have enough of an army to defend itself. If you recall, he pretty much had to give up his hopes of having a naval career because of the limitations that had been put on the Germans' ability to have military. And so Martin, because of his concern about Germany's ability to defend itself against the Communists, he joined a paramilitary group called the Academic Defense Corps. Now again, he was very, uh, very committed to Germany. He was very patriotic. He was very concerned for Germany's survival after the war. Now, the goal of this paramilitary group, the Academic Defense Corps, was initially to protect German borders from enemies, primarily communism. And Martin, along with a lot of other military men from World War One. Uh, commanded battalions so martin was one of the battalion commanders of a paramilitary group now a coup was attempted and it failed and the academic defense corps was disbanded and disarmed now disturbingly many of the leaders of the academic defense corps would form the nucleus of the nazi party And Martin was one of those leaders of the Academic Defense Corps. So, that kind of helps us see how Martin was fitting in in post-World War I Germany. Now, times were also very hard then, uh, after Germany lost that war. And at one point, Martin and Elsa were so pressed for money... And so desperate for money that Elsa removed the gold lace from his military uniform to sell for food. And this uh, type of economic uh, issues were common among the German people after the war. Uh, To support them while he was in school, Martin took a job laying railroad tracks And Martin said this was hard labor, but he liked it because it was reliable pay. And as a veteran, he also received a small stipend. However, even in spite of him working, in spite of the stipend, they still had to be so very careful with their money. Now, he and his wife soon had a little girl, uh, the first of six children that they would have together. And she was born while he was serving, as a battalion commander with the academic defense corps and her name was Brigitte and she was a little blue-eyed blonde-haired girl that he and his wife just absolutely adored and he said she brought so much joy into their life at a time that could otherwise have been quite dark and he was offered the job of taking a uh, ship to the mediterranean to deliver goods and he decided not to do this he he felt like the Lord was telling him, "This is not something I want you to do so Martin followed the Lord's leading, and it turned out that ship was seized by the British and the entire crew taken prisoner so that was a, a that was a time when it was definitely the Lord leading him well martin's uh in college he's studying theology and during his studies he finally reached the point where he had to preach a practice sermon so this was going to be a practice sermon as a part of him seeking his degree in theology again choosing theology hoping that it was minimized the amount of time he had to do public speaking well martin wrote out his entire sermon And the subject was, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And he gets up, he heads into the pulpit, and Martin said he made a good start, but all of a sudden his mind just seemed to go blank. And he said he felt so defeated, and he just finished up half-heartedly. And he felt bad about that. He felt like that was the wrong thing to do. So he asked his dad for a second chance to preach the sermon at his father's church. And his father agreed. And this time, Martin decided he wasn't going to do any of this half-heartedly. He threw his whole heart into it. As much as he dreaded public speaking, this was something that he had to do. This was something he had to face. He, had, he felt like he had been a failure the first time. He was not going to be a failure the second time he did this sermon. And Martin said that he was satisfied when he finished it, that he had done the best that he could. And from that point on, Martin said that the only fear he had when delivering sermons was a worry that he was truly delivering God's message. Now, I'll tell you what, that's the kind of pastor I'd want. That as they got in the pulpit, their only fear was making sure that they were truly speaking the word of God to the people. I think that's neat, especially from such a young minister still still in college. And a tremendous lesson that he learned with that. And apparently, uh, the Lord did deliver him from his fear of public speaking when he made up his mind that he was going to try again. And again, this is a very interesting look into Martin's character and what type of a man he was. Well, by 1922... Martin and his wife had added a son to the family, a little boy named Hans. And that happened uh, during the time that he was working, laying railroad tracks. And again, he was so thankful for that job. Even though he was studying theology and he was going to be a minister and all of that, he was never afraid to get his hands dirty. He was never afraid of manual labor. He never felt like it was beneath him. He never felt like it was... uh, unnecessary he he was more than willing to get his hands dirty when it came to work now he was later transferred however to the accountant's office and this again is an area where we can see the hand of the lord the lord helped him get that job laying railroad tracks to make money to support his family during his college years and then the lord enabled him to get a promotion to the accountant's office not only did this mean more money for martin But it freed him up with more time to study. And I thought that was neat. Um, They were trusting in the Lord. He said that he and Elsa at one point were about to run out of money. And in fact, at many points during this time, they would be just about to run out of money. It would look like the end and the Lord would supply work for him to do so that he was able to support his family. And so he and Elsa learned early on in their marriage that they could indeed trust the Lord to take care of them. They could trust the Lord to help them with their finances. They could trust the Lord to supply their needs. And that built up their faith that later on when times got so very, very hard for this couple that they knew they could trust the Lord. Well, Martin was finally ordained as a a Lutheran minister in 1924. And so that's the end of part one of Martin Niemoller's life. In part two, we're going to start looking some more at his uh, activities after World War I was over and some of his early interactions with the Nazi party and with Hitler. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it.